Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Our lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, a couple of verses from chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all sinned and lack the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Oh, it's a joy to be with you. It's really nice to be back in Birmingham. Thank you, Dean Pearson, and all of you at the Advent. I was really wondering. I actually called someone at the church today and said, is anyone going to come? Because I'm not from a place where it snows currently, and apparently this is not a place where it actually snows, but it's a place where it might. And so um, it was interesting. I was actually taken on a little bit of a tour of Birmingham yesterday from a longtime resident here. And his most interesting part of the tour, as he saw it, was we went over to where there's a shopping mall, I think it's called Brookwood, there's a Macy's and some different stuff, and he started driving circles in the parking garage. And he said, isn't this so great to be able to drive in a parking garage with no other cars here? And we just went round and round and round. He said, welcome to Birmingham, he said. And I thought, well, this is wonderful. I really love this place. Um, But it's great to be here. And what I need to do before I can say a little bit about this passage is I need to tell you one thing about my children. It's nothing that shouldn't be told. It's nothing like that. There's just one little thing you need to know about my children to understand my relationship to this passage of Scripture. And that's that when they're babies, I'm talking the first 18 months at least of their life, they do not sleep. Now, this is not a unique problem, but this is something we had in our house. My wife and I have different theories about why this was the case. She thought we did everything we needed to. It's just genetic, nothing we could have done. I think at least our children can smell fear. And so when I would put them down, they would know. You're afraid of me waking up. And just so you know who's the stronger one in this relationship, I'm now going to wake up. Right? And this would go on for a long time. And when we had our second child, we were living in England in this very small flat in the northeast of England. It was winter time. It was cold. It was dark. And my child was always awake at, say, 2 in the morning and 3 in the morning and 4 in the morning and 5 in the morning. And you get the idea. And it happened to coincide with the time of my studies over there that I was studying this passage from Romans 3. And so what would happen is I would hold this child who I was, you know, supposed to love, and I'll just leave it at that, and I would walk. The longest line you could get was in our kitchen. You could take about four steps before you hit a wall. That was the longest pacing spot I could find. So I'd take sort of four steps, get to the wall, and gently, very gently, just sort of bang my head against it. And then I would walk four steps in the other direction and do the same thing. And this would go on for, you know, four hours, four 12 months. And as I was doing it, I would think about this passage. Now, I know this is a bizarre thing, but this is actually what would happen to me. As I was doing this, I would have conversations with this passage, and I would find myself diagnosed by it. Very uncomfortably, it would tell me the truth about myself. 
I'd be holding this child. I'd be tired. I'd be thinking and feeling things about a child that I didn't expect I was capable of thinking and feeling. Right? And I would think of this passage and it would say something like, no one is righteous. And I would think, well, that's an understatement. Right? And then I would pace to the next wall, gently, you know, hit my head on it, and I would read, no one understands. And I would say, give me a break. It's three in the morning. I don't understand anything. I would go to the next wall, right? It would say, no one seeks for God. And I would think, God, just back off. I'm seeking some sleep. I'll get to you later. Right? And I'd go to the next wall. No one is good, it says. And I would just think, bingo, right? You got me. This passage told me the truth about myself. And as I remembered that, I was reminded of a news article and what I regard as America's truest news source, according to its own website, it's America's finest news source. This is, of course, The Onion. Uh, if you don't know The Onion, it's a wonderful but satirical news source. And they ran a story that went like this. And I think this is a good description of what that bit of Romans 3 can feel like, where it tells you that no one is righteous, no one is good. It, it reads like this. Today, the day they find out you're a fraud... Well, experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're a capable, worthwhile individual. A new report out this week indicates that today is the day they'll finally figure out you're a complete and utter fraud. The report compiled by the Pew Research Center, I think it's very interesting that it's the Pew Research Center, but anyway, states that sometime within the next 24 hours, people will find out that you actually have no idea what you're doing, that you've been faking it for years, and that, through continuous lying, You've actually managed to dupe virtually everyone you've come into contact with than thinking you're something other than you actually are. Now, I don't know about you, but that was a little uncomfortably close to my own fears about reality and myself. And I, I read that, and I thought about this passage, and I thought, well, that's what this passage is. This passage is that Onion headline actually coming true. This is the day you find out the truth about yourself. And so does everyone else. And it says, toward the end of that passage, it says, all human beings will be accountable or exposed or guilty before God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And then there's this sentence, which is, um, it sounds too much like jargon to actually touch your real life, but I hope to point to why it matters. It says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. And that, of course, can't have anything to do with us, because what does that even mean? But it's actually a pretty simple word picture. The idea, anytime you hear language about justification, which just means to declare righteous, the Bible's giving you a word picture. And where it's taking you, where it's taking your imagination, is to a courtroom. Somebody's on trial. And in this case, it's me. And it's you. It's human beings. And we're on trial... And to be declared righteous simply means you're found innocent, right? To not be declared righteous means you're guilty. But one more important thing you need to know is that when the Bible talks about this court scene, it's not just talking about any old thing that would happen at the county courthouse. It's talking about the final judgment, where God is the judge, and he is going to render a verdict on the life you've lived. And Paul describes two ways this could go. He says, by works of the law. In 
And that's the first word picture he gives us. So what you need to imagine to capture the image that he's doing is that you're standing at final judgment. You're in line, right? You're, there's probably a lot of people biting their fingernails. Nobody's looking at each other. They're hoping their mother's not around because that would just be intensely awkward. And you're just sort of waiting for your turn. And finally, your turn, you get up sort of before the throne of God. And what he does is he pulls out a book, a big book with your name on it. And this is just going to be a public reading of your biography, right? All your thoughts, all your words, all your deeds, all the things you did do and didn't do, your emotions. It's going to be a public reading of this. I actually was able to get one. They had it at the hotel this morning. I couldn't believe it. They had one such book. Um, this one says the thoughts, words, and deeds of Andrew Pearson. I'm not actually sure who that is. Um, but nevertheless, I thought we should just read it and just see how it goes. Um, but we're not actually going to do that. But this is just, this is just volume one of a multi-volume work on that distinguished individual. Um, but you can imagine what this scene would be like, what you might feel if your book was about to be read. Maybe you know the story about Sir Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories. A story is told about him that he wrote a letter, anonymous, and without any reason other than to do a social experiment, he wrote a letter to 12 of his sort of associates in England who were all dignified, important people. And without knowing anything about their history, he wrote to all of them, all is discovered, flee immediately, right? And according to the story, within 48 hours, all 12 of them had left the country, right? I would have left the country. If it's time to read my book, I'm going to find the back door. And we don't need to exaggerate what this experience would be like. It would just be your life. There would be things that would be beautiful. There would be things that would be mundane. And there would be things that you would rather not remember. And it would be you and your life with your children. All the love and all the sacrifice, but also the anger and the screaming and the miscommunication. It would be your life with your spouse, right? All the love, all the times that you were there for each other, but also all the times you took other things from other relationships out on them. The time when that was too safe of a relationship and it wasn't fair. Right? Real friendships that you had, right? you'd get to remember. And there would have been a lot of love and sacrifice there, but probably also envy and competition, gossip, all of those kinds of things. There's the love you had for your parents. There's also the lie you told your parents. Right? It's just a human life. Picturesque at times, painful at times. But the one thing it would never be is the one thing it needs to be. Perfect. Right? Because Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And unless that's your biography, unless that would be what your book said about you, then this can only end one way. And that's why Paul says, by works of the law, that's his way of saying, on the basis of your own biography, on the basis of the life you've lived, no one will be declared righteous. Everyone will get the sort of thumbs down in the arena of God's judgment on the basis of their own biography. None is righteous, no, not one. And that sounds like it should be the end of the story. But Paul says one more thing. And he says something that contradicts that conclusion. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. 
And what he announces in the face of this honesty, in the face of this reality, he announces a word that contradicts it, which can't be possible, but Paul promises that it's true. And he declares that though all sinned, he's still honest, they are justified or declared righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in many ways, he's telling the same story. He's using the same imagery, the same word picture. Right? You're still at final judgment. You're still in line and you're about to go up. And in many ways, it looks exactly the same. But there's one decisive difference. And only one difference. But it's the decisive difference. And it's that story that God is telling you right now. And that story goes like this. You're in line. You're waiting your turn. And finally you come and you stand before God. And he pulls out a book. And on the spine of this book, it has your name. And you're thinking, this feels very familiar. Right? I remember how this story goes. And maybe you sort of look down or look away because you can't bear to face it anymore. And the story starts off similar. The first thing you hear is a baby crying. Right? And that's the same way your life started. But then it takes a turn. And you listen to this story, which bears your name. And as you hear the baby crying, you also hear animals making noises. Because this baby was born among them. And you watch him grow. He's baptized in the Jordan River. He calls 12 disciples to follow him. He goes up on a mountain to pray. And he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And he heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He raises the dead. He hangs out with and loves the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. And because of it, people like me and people like you betray him, arrest him, try him, beat him, and crucify him. But as he hung on that cross, he said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, I'm thirsty. He said, it is finished. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he died. But the grave could not hold him. On the third day it was empty. And he came back to those who had betrayed him. And he ascended. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. At the right hand of the one who's reading that book right now. And having read that story... The story of the life, death, and life again of Jesus Christ. On the basis of his biography, not yours, but a biography that was given to you, which is why your name was on the book. Because that's who you are now. God reads that story of the life, death, and life again of Jesus. He looks at you and he says what he said to Jesus before. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. Amen.